0: a few minutes now just to jot down a of James this morning. We are in James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. So let's have God's Word open us up to James, the second chapter, and we'll begin our reading in verse 14. And when you're there, please rise for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Now this is the word of our Lord. Was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your seats and join us once more as we sing.
1: God, would you speak? Um, God, would you speak? Would you be so faithful? Um, Would you be as You have always been, uh, faithful in giving us Your good Word. We know that it depends not upon uh, the intellect of man or upon the will of man, but really upon Your Spirit who illuminates, who reveals, who helps us to understand. And so, Spirit of God, would You help us as we come to Your Scriptures to really understand, and not just understand, but have it be implanted deep within us so that we may live according to these words. We believe that they are life. We believe that they are truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage is calling us to consider the following question, can your faith save you? Can your faith save you? And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that whoever puts their faith in Jesus will be saved as we know very well from John 3:16 probably the most well-known verse in the Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life the Bible makes this extremely clear however the Bible also makes clear that there is a difference between saving faith as we find in John 3:16 and non-saving faith, or as James calls it, dead faith and useless faith. And so for us, if we want to honestly answer the question this morning, can your faith save you, we have to first consider what is saving faith and what is dead and useless faith. These are the things I want to look at in today's passage. Look with me in verse 14. This is what James writes. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, I just want you to know this verse, along with the rest of this entire passage in James, is probably the most controversial uh, passage in all of the Bible. And the reason why it's controversial is I think it's controversial because it's often misread. You see, James does not say this. He doesn't say, if we look at the next slide, he doesn't say, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? You see, if you read the verse in this way, it makes it seem as though James is saying it's possible to have faith without any works, See, that's not what James is saying. What is he actually saying? He's saying this. Next slide. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? See, James is speaking about a person who claims to have faith, yet that so-called faith makes no real difference in how he lives It has no real impact on how he thinks. It has no real influence on how he views the world. See, James, as well, he's particularly interested at this point in how we treat people who are in need. He talks about if a brother comes to you who who is, you know, in need, and all you say is, hey, go well, go in peace, Without actually helping him, James is saying, "What kind of faith is that?" And James's point, as we know, at the end of chapter one, he says, "True religion is what? It's to look after widows and orphans." See, James's his interest here, as he's talking about faith, is how do we treat and view people who are in need, or as Jesus refers to them, how do we treat the least of these in our society? And James is saying this, if faith doesn't really make a difference in how you view people and how you live and how you speak and how you pray and how you view suffering and how you view the blessings that you have, what kind of faith is that? If there is no spiritual impetus to follow after Jesus in discipleship, if there is no gospel urgency to share the good news, if there's a lack of moral consciousness to act according to the faith, what kind of faith is that? Is that actually faith? See, and the real scary part that what James is drawing out is this. This person claims to have faith. He thinks he has faith. This person, as described by James, is a classic example of a person who is self-deceived. Now, before I proceed on, uh, you know, the, the next few points, I want to let the congregation know that uh, this, this section of James, I think, is crucial. is crucial for our context. I know many of us here are very familiar with the tenets of Christianity. We're familiar with Christian culture. Many of us have actually grew up in the church And simply due to the fact that we live in the United States in the 21st century, we are not immune to cultural and nominal Christianity. It is a reality. Now, the point of this message, at least as James is telling us, the reason why James is writing this is not to strike fear into us. It's not to confuse us. It's not to give us doubt. But it's actually to exhort us and to give us warning. And that's that's the point of this passage. I know the past few weeks, some people have come up to me and mentioned how they love James, how they love his style. You know, people say, I love James because he's such a straight shooter. He calls it just as as it is. People say they love James because they think they're straight shooters too. But, you know, there's a curious point that those who claim to speak matter-of-fact actually have difficulty receiving words that are matter-of-fact. See, what follows here in James 2 are matter-of-fact words. He's calling it as it is. He's speaking plainly. And my plea is that you'll listen with receptive hearts. Please do not think, you know what, this doesn't concern me, because that's exactly who James is writing to. So back to James. James is saying this. Consider the person who says, I am." Have faith, who claims to have faith, but no real action. Is that saving faith at all? And what James is describing, as we just outlined, is a man who is self deceived. See, self deception is a real common human phenomenon. We're all guilty of it from time to time. Sometimes we deceive ourselves because of hubris, sometimes we deceive ourselves due to just delusion. We're delusional. Sometimes we have imperfect memory or selective memory, and we deceive ourselves. Sometimes we have a spirit of avoidance. We just want to avoid something, and so we constantly deceive ourselves. Sometimes we're in a, a state of hypocrisy. Sometimes we're in a state of self-worship or just wrong belief, and what we do is we deceive ourselves. We are all guilty of self-deception. You know, ben Franklin is known to have said that the person we lie to the most is ourselves, we deceive ourselves in small and big ways. Right? We say things like, "I love going to the gym," really? Because you know, only 18% of Americans actually consistently go to the gym. Or we love, we like saying, you know, we say things like, "I love eating healthy. I love kale." You know, if your doctor tells you to eat it and you do it, I'm not sure if you really love it. You know, this is a, an, an embarrassing, uh, quite an embarrassing story. But um, growing up. I uh, desperately wanted an older brother. Uh, I think it's because, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, um, I wanted someone who would protect me, who would fight for me, and who would teach me cool life skills. And I wanted an older brother so much to the point that I started lying to my friends. I started saying, hey, I have an older brother. You know, and and, and these guys are people who actually came over to my house, and they would ask, hey, where's your brother? (laughs) I'd say, he's not home. I wanted a brother so much that I even made up a name for him, Harry. (laughs) I thought it was such a strong name, Harry. I know it's the name of a razor company now, but I thought it was such a cool name. And in my own self-constructed fantasy world, I was Harry's little brother. And if anyone picked on me, Harry was going to be there. You know, I kept telling myself this lie and I kept telling others this lie to the point that I started to believe it. You know, one day I was writing in my journal and it wasn't for anyone to read. It was for my eyes only. And when I started to talk about my family or write about my family in my own journal, I started to write about Harry (laughs) subconsciously. Shakespeare's King Lear famously said, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. Oh, how deceived was he. Or Willie Loman, the father in the play Death of a Salesman, who throughout the play constantly tells himself and his family that he loves them and he's doing everything for them, that everything that he's doing is actually for them, when in fact it was for himself. See, friends, we are people who are not only good at lying to ourselves, but we are so good at believing our own lies. And James is noting the fact that this phenomenon spills over into the realm of faith. Notice how often James talks about self-deception. Just in, in the previous chapter alone, look with me in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. He says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. What was going on during this time, people in the church, they were actually blaming God for their suffering. They were saying, why is this going on in my life? They were blaming God, and anything good in their lives, they were crediting to themselves. And James is saying, hey, guys, don't be deceived. Or in chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, he's saying, listen, if you listen to the word, but you don't actually act upon it, you're deceiving yourself. Or verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. See, James knows very well the dangers of self-deception, and he warns against it. James, as we noted, is writing 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and already as he looks out into the church, what does he see? He sees cultural Christianity. He sees Christianity by association. He sees that people are claiming to have faith in Jesus without any re- regeneration, without any real repentance without any real reformation. He sees that people are just coming to church, they are associating themselves with Jesus, they are associating themselves with Christianity and the church to the point where it's cultural, without any real transformation. And James is saying, what kind of faith is that? You know, the Bible describes that when Jesus returns, when He comes back, there are going to be three general sentiments, three responses. The first, of course, is joy. Those who have endured and persevered in the faith, those who have walked by faith, those who have trusted Christ, when they see Christ's return, they will rejoice because the master whom they desired has finally arrived to take them home. The second response or the second sentiment we see is dread, fear. Those who knowingly and unknowingly turned away from the living God Those who rejected his way of salvation in Jesus will be filled with fear when they see him. And you know what the third response is? The third response is surprise. Those who thought they had faith in Christ, those who claimed they had faith in Jesus, the self deceived, when they see Christ's return, they will be surprised because even in that moment, they will think that they will enter into bliss. And eternal glory. But there Jesus utters the words, I never knew you. See, when James speaks of this non saving faith, he first speaks of deceived faith, people who have deceived themselves into thinking, I have faith. Now he doesn't stop there, but he goes on to mention another dimension and goes on to speak of another dimension of non-saving faith. Look with me in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says this, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In this verse, what is James describing? He's describing demonic faith. If the first dimension was deceived faith, the second is demonic faith. You know, contrary to popular thought, Demons also have faith. They believe that God exists. They believe that God is unique. Demons are monotheists. They believe that God, he is not just, not only that he exists, but they believe that he is powerful. They believe that he is almighty. That's the reason why they are shuddering. They are in fear. And James is saying, demons also share in this confession that that God is one. You know, this this confession, God is one, actually isn't just this generic statement of God's being. It's actually from the Old Testament. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, which at that time for the Jews was the summary statement of faith, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was the summary statement of faith for all Jews at that time. And when James is saying, okay, you believe that God is one, it's sort of equivalent to today for the Christian, the sinner's prayer. It's the summary statement. It encapsulates what we believe. It's similar to the statement, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And while we know that these statements are true and powerful and they can be expressions of genuine faith, You and I both know that statements like these can become formulaic, perfunctory, routine, uninspired, plagiarized, artificial. When you say you have faith, what does that mean? That you believe in God? That you believe He exists? James is saying, yeah, even the demons believe that. And what makes your faith different From that of a demon. See, what is missing? You see, for those of you who are well versed or the Jews during that time, they know that the summary statement of their faith that God is one shouldn't just end there but it ought to continue into the next verse because Deuteronomy 6.5 says this, God is one, therefore you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. This was the summary statement. And demonic faith is just simply knowing that God exists. It's belief without trust or simply it's knowledge. It's knowing the tenets of Christianity knowing the doctrines of faith, yet failing to alter or change the course of one's life in response of this truth. A.W. Tozer, in describing this, says this, the man of pseudo-faith will fight for his verbal creed but refuse flatly to allow himself to get into a predicament where his future must depend upon that creed being true. He will always provide himself with secondary ways of escape so that he will have a way out if the roof caves in. What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at that last day. James is saying, okay, so you prayed the sinner's prayer. You walk down the aisle one day for an altar call. You know, you confessed and you cried at a retreat. You were baptized and you were confirmed. These can be outward signs of grace, but they also can be false pretenses on which we falsely rely upon. This is what I mean when, we say, when I said that this is, we all need to heed to this. We need to listen carefully to what James is saying. Friends, I know very well that just because I'm a pastor and I know the Bible doesn't mean that I'm exempt from this as well. How often have we seen men do amazing things for the Lord for decades, only to find out in the end that their consciences were seared and they did not believe in the things that they taught. I'm reminded of Jonah, who in the belly of the fish prayed that God would be merciful. God, be forgiving. You are a loving and merciful God. But when he preached to the Ninevites, he did not believe his own message, that God was merciful, that he was forgiving. I'm reminded of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.27, the pioneer of the Christian church and Christian missions. This is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 10.27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified what is paul talking about here saying i can go around and do all of these things i can church plant i can preach i can do all of these amazing things but there is there is a very real possibility that paul himself would be disqualified church the truth of the matter is you and i can be so close to the faith we can be so knowledgeable about the faith we can be so convinced that we are in the faith when in actuality we are imposters and hypocrites. Church, is a sobering thought, but one that should not be missed. The New Testament talks about it quite often and warns us to keep an account, to look after our souls in a similar manner after we look after, in the way that we look after our diet and our health. There is such a thing as non-saving faith, deceived faith, demonic faith. So then what is really saving faith? What is James talking about here? Look look with me in verse 17. He says this, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Saving faith, according to James, is one where faith and works are not artificially detached from one another. See, friends, faith is not less than knowledge, but it's more than knowledge. Knowledge and James's encouragement here is this let faith be operative let faith be active let faith be living let faith have the effect to the point that now it starts to control your character your actions your perspective it's saying let faith be your operating system See, friends, the truth of the matter is, you and I are all operating according to some faith. There is some worldview and some faith that is controlling how we act, how we view the world, how we treat others. There is some faith, underlining faith, that you and I have, some hope that we are holding on to, and according to this, we are living our lives. And James is saying, what is that? Let that be Christ. Not the American dream, not some pie-in-the-sky dream that you've brought up for yourself, not some ideal version of yourself, but let that be faith. Let your operating system be your faith in Christ. Let it control how you respond. Your character, your actions, your perspective. A few days, a few days ago, I was at a funeral uh, from one of my relatives. Um, he passed away at a relatively young age, at the age of 70, uh, he died with intestinal cancer. And uh, he was a man of great faith. Uh, he was a music- musician. He loved the Lord. And um, the unfortunately, the disease um, and the treatment uh, towards the end of his life was just wrecking his body. And during the funeral, it was shared that this man, as his life was quickly fading away, and he was racked in pain, and almost you could you could barely recognize who he is, who he was. Uh, in his final days, he uttered the words, you know, the one song that I wish to sing, if I could sing, is the hymn, Precious Lord, take my hand. And he said, You know, at my funeral, please sing this song. The song as as some of you might know, was a song that was sung at Martin Luther King's funeral. It's uh, the most recorded gospel song ever, but it goes like this. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my light is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm lone. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. This man, as he was on his deathbed, waiting the moments when he would go home, his confession was, "I am tired, I am weak, and I need you, precious Lord, to take me home." After living decades of faith of a faithful life, his last confession was, "I need you to take me home. Take my hand." You know, faith and faithfulness, often for the Christian, are often conceived in very separate categories. You know, many of us would claim to have faith but very few of us would say that we are faithful, because faith is more basic, more elementary, while faithfulness is supercharged. But, you know, the Bible sees these two as one of the same. To have faith means to live faithfully in accordance with what you believe. That is faithfulness. Taking the things that you believe and letting it be operative, taking the faith that you have in Christ The Lord of glory and let it letting it be operative in your life, letting it be active in your life. Where it's altering, changing, transforming our day-to-day. Now, friends, here at this point, I have to tell you that we need to avoid a pitfall here. Some of you might be thinking, okay, so if this is what saving faith is, I need to start acting. I need to start working. I'm going to work, I'm going to work, I'm going to work, and I'm going to produce my faith. But that is not what James is saying. Please do, not be, uh, Please do not misunderstand me. Look what James says in verse 18. He says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James here, if you're following along, is doing something very interesting at this point. Remember at first, The person that James was speaking of, at first the person claimed to have faith but no works. James says that's not faith at all. But in this next statement, this next person that he's quoting is a person that says what? You have faith, I have works. It's reversed. What is this second person doing? He's performing the duties of a Christian but void of any faith. And James is saying this, listen, however admirable this person's work might be, however great he's, whatever he's doing, James is also rejecting this position. You see, in the way that you can't have faith without works, you cannot have works without faith. James is saying, listen, it's impossible, as he writes in verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, the point for us this morning is not to leave these doors and say, you know what, I need to work, I need to work, I need to work. No, James is saying, where does this start from? It starts from faith. It begins with our faith in Jesus Christ. And what does that mean for our life? A good way to conceive this is, you know, there's, there's faith and there's works. And the bridge between faith and works is trust. Knowing what Christ has done for you And acting upon that, the bridge between these two things, uh, the bridge is trust. True faith, friends, entails trust. True faith entails trust. It means trusting in God. Trusting in Him and His Word, even when you can't understand everything He's saying. Trusting in His Word, even when you can't see anything. Because that is what faith is, isn't it? Trusting in God, even in moments of suffering and pain. Trusting in God in moments of indifference. Trusting in God in moments of sin. Trusting that in Christ, God is your eternal Father and that He will never fail you, that He will never forsake you. Faith means trusting, trusting through obedience. It means trusting through moments of doubt. To even after hearing James' message in chapter 2, some of us may be concerned, thinking, can I really have saving faith? Do I really have saving faith? But friends, saving faith is trusting in Him. Trusting in Him that He will finish the work that He has started in you. Friends, I can't tell you how often I go back and forth between assurance and doubt. It's like a seesaw where you're just balancing, going back and forth, back and forth. I'm assured, I doubt. I'm assured, I doubt. And you're just going back and forth, back and forth. The Father loves me. Does He not love me? He forgives me. Am I really forgiven? And you go back and forth, back and forth. And you know what faith is? Faith is trusting that His promises are good and true, even in moments of weakness, even in moments of doubt even in moments of fear. Faith is knowing that you have come to the end of yourself and that you need Him every step of the way. Faith is trusting that His blood is stronger than your sins, that His pursuit is more persistent than your backsliding. Faith is trusting that sin and death has been defeated at the cross and in His resurrection, and that you and I are no longer slaves to those things. So where do we begin? Where do we start? With faith. With faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as James says in chapter 2, verse 1. Faith, as we hold on to the faith that we have in Christ Jesus, let it be operative in you. Let it be active. Let it be living in you. Let your faith be the bedrock, the foundation upon which you live. Live not through some false hope, that you have not some idealized version of what you think life is or who you are, but live according to the faith that you have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you, church, this morning be encouraged that if there is any doubt in you, that His assurance is stronger than your doubt? If there's any lingering sin in you, would you trust that His forgiveness covers over all of your sin? And no matter how much backsliding your heart may feel, no matter how much wandering your heart may prone to do, that His persistent love and pursuit of you is so much stronger than anything you can do. That is faith. That is trust. Let us once again rely and trust upon that truth this morning. Would you join me in prayer at this time? If we could just take a few minutes to respond in prayer. The life of faith that James described is not a supercharged life that we normally conceive or we mistakenly think of. But a life of faith is one where the faith that we have in Jesus is operative. Where we take the truth of Christ, where we take the truth of the gospel and what he has done and who he says that we are And we live that out. We live that out. So this morning, wherever you may be, whether it's in a spirit of indifference, a spirit of hubris, a spirit of deception, whether it's a spirit of doubt, fear, wherever you may be, would you this morning place your faith not upon what you can muster up or what you can do, but would you place your faith in the work of Christ? Would you trust in that to liberate you, to free you? Precious Lord, take my hands, lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm alone. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Precious Lord, take my hands, Precious Lord, take my hand and lead me home. Let this be your confession this morning. Let's pray.